Welcome to Predicting People, hosted by Professor Nick Chater and Dr. Henry Stott, the co-founders of DeckTech. Predicting People explores current events and their commercial implications through the lens of behavioral science. Hello, everyone. In this episode, Henry and I are going to be talking about the idea of consumer duty. And this is a very live issue at the moment because the FCA has just introduced new regulations, well, starting in April 2023, which are going to affect the financial services industry and its interaction with customers in a fairly dramatic way. So in the context of banking, of course, consumer duty goes beyond mere financial services. But in the context of banking, this is going to have four elements. There's going to be products and services themselves. There's going to be price and value. There's going to be customer understanding. We'll be talking more about that later. And there's also going to be the question of customer support. So once you've got a product, how much support do you get in, in using it and understanding it? And there's a very interesting wider background, which we'll say something about throughout this podcast here. So it's not just about these narrow bits of legislation. It's about a change in thinking among lots of regulators around the world in how we should be understanding the way markets function in the best way for consumers. The story going back several decades from the Chicago School Economists would be to emphasize that markets are relatively self-correcting things. If there's any consumer problems, if people are buying the wrong stuff, the market will sort that out. If you're trying to sell bad stuff, people won't buy it. Or independent uh, brokers will come into the market and say, and evaluate the various options and allow you to choose the right one. So there should be some automatic self-organizing, self-correcting solution to problems of consumers buying the wrong thing. And of course, in the case of finance, that's quite challenging because we're dealing with products that often we don't understand very well at all. So one might worry that this would be a, a difficulty. But the big Chicago economists, Gary Becker, Milton Friedman, George Stiegler, and so on, these were people who were pretty reassuring on that front. And the regulatory framework in America, the UK, and elsewhere has been strongly influenced by that perspective. But we've seen that the situation has changed quite dramatically. We have started to worry a lot about ways in which markets can inadvertently or sometimes deliberately cause consumer detriment. And that's not now viewed as such a marginal issue. Hence, we have regulations such as these. So I want to ask you, Henry, what is it that's really changed here? How have we gone from a, a sort of a great confidence that consumers will all be served well by markets to a, a suspicion that we really need to put some of the owners, quite a lot of the owners, on the retailer of the product? It does sound like a dreadfully dull topic, it has to be said. But on the other hand, it is actually quite profound in that there's been this movement over time that has a decently long history and uh, as such is the sort of force that's applying. And we took a little later actually about all the different clients that we've got, all the different places where we see this kind of problem materializing. As you're saying, I mean, fundamentally, there's a problem here that there's a long history of people making money by creating some kind of other wider bad, some form of pollution, some kind of exploitation, and so on. And that history goes all the way back to um, the tragedy of the commons, which uh, itself was you know, hundreds of years ago, grazing rights problem that was first described in a pamphlet by an economist called William Lloyd in 1833. So for a long time, people have understood that there are people out there doing bad things and not really having to pay for it. The more recent instantiation of that, that people perhaps would identify more with would be the Lorax. The famous quote was, I speak for the trees, I speak for the trees, for the trees have no tongues. And you have this problem out there that uh, people are creating carbon, doing all these bad things, and um, there's no comeback to them. Going back to the economists, I mean, there's been various musings on how to solve this problem over the years, and they've sort of basically fallen into three camps. 
you know, one of them is this idea of the uh, Pigovian tax. There's a guy called Arthur Pigou in the 1920s who was saying, oh, well, you know, if we've got a problem, we should just tax it. You get taxes on cars so that there isn't so much congestion. There's a lot of discussion about sugar taxes. We obviously already have tobacco and alcohol taxes. And if you live in Singapore, presumably, well, actually, if you don't live in Singapore, there may well be a chewing gum tax. But if you live in Singapore, there is the other option of just an outright ban. And so an outright ban would be, in effect, a very extreme form of a, of a tax. <laughs> You're saying, okay, right, you just can't do this. You can't have chewing gum. You can't uh, sell drugs. You can't murder people uh, and other social bads. And indeed, you can't missell mortgages, as we'll talk about in a minute. But it's interesting. I mean, there's a fundamental tension there between supplier and consumer responsibility. Yes. I mean, an example that comes to my mind there is my friend and colleague, George Lowenstein, was once at a talk, I think this is 2006 or so, I think, which was a public health conference on childhood obesity. And one of the speakers, a poorly chosen speaker, it turns out, was a Chicago school economist called Kevin Murphy. And he, following the, the Chicago school, I mean, not doing anything out of line with complete orthodoxy, was really, there is no problem of childhood obesity, and there's no real problem of obesity at all, even though in the US and in the UK, and indeed across the developed world, there's been enormous rises in obesity. And the reason was, from the Chicago school perspective, that people are clearly choosing to eat nice things now, and don't think that the consequences of poor health later are that important. But people are just revealing their true underlying preferences. We don't have to intervene in the market. Just let it take its course. Life, liberty and burgers. There is a great quote on this. It draws out this sort of political divide quite nicely, I think. And the quote is, government's first duty is to protect people, not to run their lives. But on one hand, you know, they need protecting. But on the other hand, I can't tell them what to do. You have any sense of who said that, Nick? No idea. No, you tell me. It was, in fact, the Gipper, Ronald Reagan. Not Ronald Reagan again. My goodness. Yeah, I think he cropped up at the, in the last episode. It's haunting us. My challenge is to get into every episode. <laughs> you know, you have to walk this line between protecting people from burgers, but on the other hand, not telling them what they have to eat. So it, it's sort of how do you walk that line? And that is the sort of thread of this legislative framework. So then, you know, the idea of polluter pays in the UK specifically, has a more recent history. In fact, actually, I think the original coinage goes back to the 1990 uh, Environmental Protection Act, which was put in place by, of all people, Chris Patton, when he was the uh, Secretary of State for the Environment under Margaret Thatcher, a few months before he introduced the poll tax legislation, which obviously didn't go as well. And the idea that the polluter plays is sort of then exists and then suddenly now you see examples of it everywhere. So in, in the sense we're here talking about the consumer duty legislation uh, for banks, but you know the reality is everywhere you look, you see this problem. Philip Morris has got this problem. It used to be that um, when you dropped a cigarette butt, you shouldn't have dropped it. It was your problem. Now it is Philip Morris's problem. They shouldn't have made the cigarette butts and put them into the hands of people who are going to drop them and so on and so forth. British Gas has got in problem, you know, into problems with prepayment meters recently. We did some work with Tottenham Hotspur about how they zone the new stadium so that vulnerable supporters would still have access to games and so on and so forth. And so then you come to various clearing banks, large banks, insurers today who are facing this problem of consumer duty. If you give someone something or you sell a product to someone that's the wrong thing, then this is your problem. So that leads on to the actual topic, and we can talk about that in two seconds. But it's interesting that just in the UK, obviously, the banks are pretty touchy on this topic because they have this history of mis-selling. 
for those that didn't follow it, young enough to have missed it or whatever it was, back for years, in the last century, in fact, it was common practice for financial services companies to sell payment protection insurance. And that was a premium that you paid alongside a mortgage or a credit card or some other form of borrowing that if you became ill or you were made redundant, would pay out. And it turned out that um, a lot of people were sold this insurance premium when they didn't need it at all. Perhaps they were retired uh, or whatever it was. And so they were sold this thing. You know, it was done by basically not telling them that they were buying it or just making it confusing. So they didn't understand that they were not buying it, that they were buying it. Against the backdrop of that, come 1998, I think it was, it started to become apparent that this had been going on for decades. And then finally, the FCA started fining people. And then there was a high court battle in 2011, wherein the high court said that various people that had been selling these policies have retrospective standards imposed upon them for the mis-selling of these things. So it's like, if you sold this thing in 1995, it doesn't matter that no one said you shouldn't do it, you shouldn't have done it. And, you know, you owe people recompense for having mis-sold them this thing. Payment protection insurance, it sounds like a little thing, but the reality is that over the next 10 years, Lloyds Bank paid out 17 billion, they were the biggest one, paid out 17 billion pounds in costs for this, of which about two thirds went to consumers who'd been paying these premiums and a third went on admin. So, I mean, to give a sense of scale, 17 billion pounds, Lloyd's profits this year will be about 6 billion. I mean, you're talking about a 2 billion pound per year drag, probably, on their profits over a period of five years or so. The entire banking sector has paid out 39 billion, and they've done that kicking and screaming. I mean, people estimate that actually the problem probably amounts to 100 billion. So if you're a bank at this point and someone says, hey, don't do that, you really sit up and listen. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something very interesting, isn't there, about the fact that consumer detriment turns out to be, rather than being a marginal issue for the banks themselves, or indeed retailers, well, retailers of any product, it turns out potentially to be a really first-order question that determines whether you thrive or or struggle. So yes, indeed, it's become hence very much top of the agenda for financial services industries and clearly also for the regulator. So why do we have this problem? In the case of financial services, we have this problem in a particularly extreme way because financial products are often very complicated and difficult to understand. Now, partly that may be in some cases, because they're deliberately made quite hard to understand, in the case of PPI, for example. But just inherently, things like pensions, for example, are extremely complicated. Investments in general, very mysterious, very hard for economists to figure out, but extremely difficult for everyday people for whose this is not a high priority and it's not their skill set uh, to figure out what is an appropriate thing to do and what isn't. So people can, therefore, be very easily misled into wrong choices. We've mentioned PPI already, but there are clearly lots of extremely problematic investment schemes, payday loans. There's a whole world of products in general financial services realm. And of course, moving into the world of crypto, uh, non-fungible tokens, there's all kinds of extremely high risk investments that people are, are making, uh, which look more like gambling. And so if these, there's a whole world of potential difficulties where, where everyday consumer, and I would include myself in this, is not really qualified to make careful decisions without some assistance. So of course, this is one reason that communication is going to be particularly crucial. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. You've also got a huge amount of variability in people. And I think one of the reasons that retailers of anything tend to underestimate the problem of consumer detriment is that they understand their product pretty well because it's their product. They spend all their time thinking about it. So they can't really understand why people would buy the wrong product because why would you if the products are completely transparent and clear? At least that's the most benign interpretation. There are, I think, cases where 
this setting is, is much more deliberate than that. Where it is benign, I think that's a very natural thing to think if you spend your entire life in financial services, but you forget vast numbers of people don't have barely low levels of financial literacy. In fact, the UK is quite good for financial literacy, but still the ability to you know, read a pretty simple graphs and calculate compound interest and so on is very limited. A fair number of people will have quite specific vulnerabilities, really quite far-reaching ones. So they'll have things like science impairments, which may make it difficult to actually to read some of the information that are being given. They may have mental health challenges, which might cause all sorts of problems with decision-making. Indeed, very commonly, people have your basic challenges with reading and arithmetic, just dyslexia, dyscalculia are quite common. People may be going through all sorts of life crises. There's just so many ways in which people's decision-making is not optimal. All of us are going to be struggling in one way or another. In fact, looking at the kind of analysis we've been doing with a large bank at the moment, you know, more than half of the population at any given time is suffering from something which is putting them in one vulnerable group or another. It's worth thinking about why this is such a problem in financial services in particular. And I think one reason is that financial products are especially hard to understand. And often the choices we're supposed to make are so difficult that uh, they would challenge and do actually challenge professional economists. So if you're trying to work out you know, how to invest your pension fund or even how much to save for your pension, this is a just an inherently extremely difficult problem, which has great uncertainties and all kinds of complicated calculations. But even in more simple cases, the practicalities are really difficult. It's just not in our skill set, most of us to figure out how to invest or save or borrow in the most efficient way. Now, this means, of course, that if we're led in the wrong direction, we'll probably happily follow that direction. And we've seen that with PPI. Often people were not really aware they're even buying a product at all. So it might be just worth getting a sense of scale on that. The PPI scandal affected about a million people. I mean, if there's 25 million households, you're not talking about great swathes of society here in the sense... But on the other hand, you are talking about significant numbers of people and therefore, you know, significant damage being done. So at some level, consumer duty is a thing that is focused on a minority of people who are, have these problems making these decisions. But it's still a substantial minority. I think that's the crucial point, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. And of course, many of these vulnerable groups are actually pretty big. They'll be running into the very many millions of people. And so, in fact, the piece of work we've been doing with a large bank has been looking at the size of different vulnerable groups. And, and more than half of us have some vulnerability or another. Um, so, yeah, the numbers can be pretty substantial. So what are banks supposed to do? Well, of course, according to the FDA's regulations, we've got four areas to look at, products and services, price and value, consumer understanding, consumer support. And we're going to focus, I think, primarily on, on understanding. And in particular, what banks can do to communicate more effectively to their customers. The way to think about this is to think about this in a number of levels, because it's a, it's a complex problem, and there are very different parts, depending on which level you're thinking about, the different aspects of the problem. So we tend to think of it in terms of the four Ps of uh, particulars, purpose, position, and potential. So particulars are, can I understand the words in this letter and what they're trying to say? Uh, purpose is, why on earth have you sent this to me? The question I'm always asking with these letters. Position is, where am I financially? Yeah, what's going on? Am, am, I, am I okay? Or do I need to take some immediate action? Uh, Am I sinking? Am I in a solid position? And potential is how can I plan my future, my financial future effectively? So it's interesting that a lot of the previous run-up to this consumer duty legislation was about what I would describe as the position potential problem. You know, the idea of robo-advice, mm. all that sort of thing where you've got attempts to help people make the right decision, unquote. Whereas, you know, your point here is that there's also just a whole set of problems to do with this myriad of different bits of paper that I'm continually being sent by all my financial providers, often multiple times through different channels, which are hard to understand, 
let alone actually then convert into a decision or pose a question, you know, convert into a question to decide over. So it's sort of, there's very much been this focus hitherto on the end of this problem as opposed to the beginning of it, as it were. Yeah, I think that's very interesting because, yes, if you don't get the beginning right, if you don't have any idea what the letters are actually about, then you clearly can't make a good decision on the basis of them. And I think that that's something where, which is, has been understudied and under-analysed and is going to be a big issue going forwards. So what can you do? So one of the things you can do uh, on the particulars front, helping people actually understand the communications, is you know, quite sort of concrete things. You can look at the kind of words to use, the, how frequent those words are, how familiar, grammatical complexity, which there are computational tools to do. One of the things that we've been doing is using something, a technique borrowed from the psychology of language called the closed test. And that's a sort of deeper measure of comprehension. So what you do is you take a passage, a paragraph from some of these delightful letters, and you take some words out at random and you ask people to put them back. So can you figure out where the word should go? And it's a pretty good measure of whether people understand the passage, whether they can do that successfully. And of course, you can measure how accurate and how long they take and so on. Of course, that's quite a nice measure because you can do that in, a, in an automated way. So you can take very large numbers of letters and take words out of them, get people to put them back in, rather than having to devise a specific comprehension test, which would be a very laborious process for each individual communication. But also, we need to go beyond just asking people to how, whether they understand a letter. So a classic approach is to is just to ask people, well, we save you this letter, you know, does it make sense? Do you understand it? Well, the key points. And our introspection about our understanding is, is hopeless. Our in, in, introspection about our own minds is generally uh, fairly hopeless. And that's one of the deep insights of psychology, really. And very much a house view from us, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Constantly uh, fretting about the fact that uh, people think they know much more than they in fact do. Yeah, so if, if that weren't true, decision technology would not be needed in the world because you could just use standard market research. You could just simply ask people what they understood and what they thought, and they would simply tell you. Unfortunately, they turned out not to be able to do that. So you need to use these more indirect strategies. So yes, in, in this case, the illusion of explanatory depth is particularly extreme. So there's a, across many, many fields, if you ask people to explain how a bicycle works or how air conditioning works and draw a picture, pretty confident until they start to do it. And then they find their explanations are total nonsense and their pictures are completely ludicrous. So if you have a bicycle, by the way, try this. Try drawing a picture of your bicycle with chain and pedals and how the chain connects to the, the gears. I remember you once asking me how electricity works. Right. Yeah, there you go. Yes. And you're like, yeah, I sort of, I think I know, but then hmm, I don't really at all. No, no, indeed. This is what you have when you have small kids as well, isn't it? You suddenly get these elementary questions which utterly baffle you. So to deal with that kind of problem, you need to ask people concrete questions, which actually test whether they really do understand. But then you want to automate this. If you're going to use this for a large number of communications, you need to find a set of questions, many of which are going to be applicable across a wide range of products and letters, so that you're not continually having to reinvent the questions for every time. So that's something that we've been working on quite a lot on. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, the customer base, sticking with the earlier example, mm. must be you know, 5 million, say. Bigger than that, I think, yeah. And then they're going to be sending those 5 million people a letter a month across all the different products they own or something. So you've got tens of millions of comms. Indeed it is. And, and as ever with these things, there are a few comms that go to a large number of people. And there are lots and lots of comms which go to a very small number of people which have more specialist information. But often that information could be quite important. Um, so yeah, the, the scope of the problem is gigantic. And of course, most financial services firms have many subsidiaries and different branches which do different kinds of things so that you know the complexity is just you know, is enormous so you building a high throughput system which can automate this process of saying 
how much people understand the content they're being given and can they actually cope with the, the language and so on. It's really crucial, but also something that we're actually actively doing at the moment. But a critical question is going to be how the FCA reacts to the various uh, things that financial services companies are doing. And I think what the, what, as an industry, Christian is going to be, you know, what is actually going to be FCA compliant? But I think our assumption is the FCA are going to be pretty tough on this. And this is a pretty first order issue for them. So they're going to be expecting some pretty robust, uh, scientifically solid measures to be in place. And that's what we're trying to put in, because I think uh, this is, the issues are too big to be left to, to intuition. So Henry, where are we going here? Where, where are we going to be in, in the next decade or two with consumer duty? Well, I think it has always been the case that at some level, I've sat in a meeting once with the chief executive of a major clearing bank, albeit not one that's currently in situ, because this was a while ago. But they literally said, our credit card business is not pretty. Uh, we're basically making money out of tricking people. And there is this theme of people essentially benefiting from, in effect, exploiting their, their customer base. So this, this trend towards protecting that customer base has been only going one way since that meeting, and you know, appropriately so. So, you know, 20 years ago, if you got a mortgage and you couldn't pay it back, you had a problem. Today, if you've got a mortgage and you can't pay it back, the bank's got a problem. They should not have given you the money. That has been the direction of travel over the last 20 years or so. And it's hard to see that going in the opposite direction. And to your earlier point, because there are millions, tens of millions of comms going out, and you've decided that actually you can't just decentralize production of those things. It's kind of analogous to the 1990s, say, when the banks turned around and went, all right, we can't decentralize the lending anymore. You know, we used to do this thing where the local manager would know everyone, branch manager would know people, and he'd make the loan decisions. But then that all got taken away from the local managers because it was demonstrated that they were not able to do the job properly. I mean, they were doing the job mainly okay, but of course, in a minority of cases, they were getting it wrong. And in this case with these communications, you know, mainly the communications are okay, but of course, there are communications to specific groups of people that are not okay. And so the banks will need to, in effect, mechanize the control of that in the same way that they have been digitizing and mechanizing everything else. It's sort of, it's an unavoidable consequence of the direction of travel towards consumer duty going back to the wider context and the fact that we've got lots of different sectors that we work in where this problem is sort of manifesting in different ways. You know, ESG is a thing. And uh, the sort of ethical behavior of companies is now, if you look at the pension funds that you can invest in and so forth, there are now ESG funds specifically. There's a movement in corporate level good behavior that's a sort of important thread now within the sort of financial fabric of the country. That sort of is an example of the wider trend that, that is inexorably coming along now. Yeah, I think that's right. And we see that in other ways. With Warwick Business School, I was involved in a piece of work called Leading Integrity a few years ago, which was looking at organizational and behavioral ethics for firms. And the basic sort of outcome of that process was realizing that we need to shift to a mindset where we're doing things that, as if the world was transparent, and on the assumption that if we do things that would not stand up to scrutiny, if discovered, rather like the unpretty credit card business, it's all going to fall apart horribly. So the thought that it is really a, a sustainable business model, you do things which have to remain in the shadows, I think it's just wrong. I mean, we shouldn't be doing things in the shadows, which, which can't be see that bear the light of day. But also, I suspect most of the time, it's bad business now. And it's going to be even worse business in the future as regulators and governments become ever more concerned about the welfare of consumers. 
Well, that's it for this time. I hope our thoughts on um, consumer duty, not the most exciting sounding of topic, but were interesting. This is an issue that's going to be with us the next five years, 10 years, decades to come. It's only going to grow. So um, it's something we should be all paying close attention to if we want business to thrive and if we want consumers to prosper. Thanks very much to everybody for listening and we'll see you next time on Predicting People. Thank you for listening. If you found the show interesting, please subscribe to the podcast. To find out more, you can find us at decktech.co.uk and you can follow us on LinkedIn where we regularly post our latest research.